Well, this morning we meet a man of God, grandson of Methuselah. He was what we call a family man. In fact, after one major event, his family was all he had left. Indeed, I believe if the earth could talk, she might tell us that this man lived through her greatest pain. Chosen by God, gifted by God, this man would perpetuate the human race. It would be through his three sons that the entire globe would be populated. And we'll learn also that he was a righteous man, though we'll learn righteous doesn't mean perfect. This morning, we meet a man named Noah. Noah will teach us much about God. But the overarching theme I wish for us to see is God's righteous wrath. Wrath is God's attitude toward sin and toward evil. That his wrath is just means that it is righteous or right or even necessary. You may hear little of this in contemporary Christian conversation. This type of discussion might be too offensive, too intolerant. It's not exactly winsome either. I think it's easier to speak of the peace of God or the love of God. This notion of wrath, God's wrath, it can cause discomfort. Even more so when we call it righteous or just, for that implies that someone might even deserve it. But I believe when we turn our hearts to it, and when we absorb its reality, even in some small portion, we might very well come undone. To contemplate the wrath of God, it evokes fear in the human creature. And it causes that creature to cry out, not request, but to cry out for mercy and for grace, which we should and which we'll get. And here's the thing. As we step into the life of Noah this morning, what he will witness is coming again. Not in the same way, in worse ways. Not in the same quantity, in greater. Noah's God is a holy God who judges evil. And this morning, you and I will explore three responses of righteous wrath to sin. Now, we're picking up this morning in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. This summer, we're working our way through the book of Genesis, exploring the various characters or patriarchs. But we're doing it to learn more about God the perfections or the attributes of our great God. Last time, we saw the person of God through the life of Adam. God showered his redeeming love upon a fallen man. And even after Adam's sin, God's love remained. His grace was magnified. We now continue in Genesis chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 8. This is God's grief over sin. It's the first response of of our God towards sin, God's grief over sin. 
And if you came in here this morning looking for a hard passage to interpret, you're in luck. If you wanted something that'll really make Michael sweat, mission accomplished. I want to read the first four verses to you. They're rife with challenges. I think it's important for us, as we do, to keep a hold of the main point. We're about to jump down a hole here, keep hold of the rope. The purpose here is to show us the evil of mankind with all the different views and interpretations happening. Remember, the purpose is to show us the evil of mankind. All right, so let's jump down the hole now. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Well, in these first four verses, there are three major interpretations. Each revolves around the word sons of God, or the phrase sons of God in verse 2. Some believe these sons of God were fallen angels that the sons of God were fallen angels. And in this view, angels engaged in some kind of unnatural sexual union with daughters of men or with human beings, with women. As a result, in verse 4, the Nephilim were their offspring. Positively, this view accounts for the contrast between the two groups in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, the men had daughters. Well, in verse 2, along come the sons of God, and they take them as wives. But working against this view is Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. There, Jesus teaches that angels do not marry. They don't procreate with the human race. That would be true of heavenly angels as well as fallen angels. And you'll see in a moment that the judgment rendered in chapters 6 and 7 is is really directed toward people, toward human beings. It's the human race who receives judgment. A second view views the sons of God as human judges or as rulers. The lineage of Cain has produced cities and and violence and polygamy. We saw this back in chapter 5. And at the time, these so-called sons of God ruled the, ruled the land. And some with this view believed that they were demon-possessed. They took daughters of men and they produced the Nephilim of verse 4. Well, the drawback to this view is that the context doesn't really focus on kingship. And that's, that's not the focus of the surrounding chapters. A broader group for judgment should be in view. Verse 5 would, would, would indicate judgment on, on a broader scale, not just toward these kings. Well, the third view goes in a different direction. The sons of God are the sons of Seth. This would be the righteous line of Seth, Adam's son. His line would produce godly offspring. The line of Cain, in turn, would produce 
ungodly offspring. This view takes the daughters of men to be in the line of Cain. In fact, the Old Testament will soon show us the headaches that came with intermarriage. Israel would go on to marry other people. When they did, when she did, they would adopt other religions and adopt immorality and adopt idolatry. In fact, the law will prohibit this. I tend to favor this view, but I concede it too has its challenges. Again, holding on to the rope, coming back up out of the hole, what's the main point? The author seeks to show us the evil of mankind. And he tells us too. In verses 11 and 13, you can count the number of times the word corrupt or the word violence appears. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Translations may vary, but I counted five appearances of these words. Three times corrupt, twice violence. God describes the world as corrupt. Yes, the earth is corrupt, but God identifies the people as the source. They're morally responsible for the corruption. We might call them willing players in the corruption. Verse 12, all flesh had corrupted their way. It's interesting, the Hebrew word, if we change just one small vowel marking, we get the word slime pit. It's that close. Now, twice we see this word violence. The earth was filled with violence. The Hebrew word here is pronounced Hamas. Now, you know that word as an Islamist terrorist organization. It's actually an acronym. It's an acronym, but in Arabic, the word does mean zeal. And I think it's just a huge stroke of irony that they chose a word that in Hebrew means violence. One Israeli newspaper labels them the terror network that didn't do its Hebrew homework. But I believe then that these conditions, this condition of violence and this condition of corruption, it helps to explain verse 4. The Nephilim stand as a notorious group of the time. And so too does a group called the Gibberim. Now our English Bibles translate that word in verse 4 as mighty men or heroes, or warriors, but I think it's best to keep it as the Hebrew proper noun that it is. Nephilim and Gibberim, these two groups of people. And what they do in this verse is, again, they function to illustrate the depth of corruption and violence present on the earth. That's the point. Remember, we're holding on to the rope. It's to show us the depth of evil of mankind. We can illustrate it this way. Maybe if you and I are explaining American history to someone, and we might want to underscore just how bad things were in the American West. We might say, oh, yeah, during the 1870s, that was the time of Jesse James and Billy the Kid. It's that type of illustration. 
So you can see then how the author might be using these two groups to to illustrate the corruption and the violence upon the earth. I've wondered in reading this, perhaps you do too, if things are as bad today as they were back then. I think ultimately that's a difficult question to answer. But I do believe, sadly, there are a lot of parallels. Jesus spoke of the days of Noah. In Matthew 24, verse 37, he predicts that the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus teaches a a suddenness to his appearance and a suddenness to the judgment in the days of Noah. People are caught completely by surprise. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was true of the people in Noah's day, yet they were living a pretty normal life, eating and drinking and marrying. Our day, I don't know if it will surpass theirs, but we're certainly shooting for a tie. Genesis 6 shows us the evil of mankind. How does God respond? Follow the verbs. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Each one of those three verses opens with a crucial statement. Verse 5, the Lord saw. Verse 6, the Lord regretted. Verse 7, the Lord said. Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. God saw the hearts of men and God saw the deeds of men. And this is not some kind of casual, occasional sin. This was a lifestyle. This was part of the culture. In verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The King James Version reads that God repented. That's probably not the best translation, especially when we think of all that's involved with repentance. But God grieved. God felt something towards sin. It's not as though God is changing his mind about creating man. He's not discovering some mistake that he made, but God experiences an emotional anguish over sin. In verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. God renders a verdict. And he is going to bring about a global sweeping judgment. So here we are at the end of those first few verses with a few points of application already. And Noah hasn't even been mentioned yet. But again, God is revealing himself to us. He's teaching us. I want you to see first here that that God relates to his creation. God relates to his creation 
God is not distant and only distant. Deism is, is a false belief that, that God exists, but he's not present in our lives. That God isn't interacting with the world, that God doesn't intervene with the world. Many of our founding fathers were deists. Many believed in God. They understood that God's moral principles were important in, in establishing a society, but, but a personal relationship, well, that's another matter. But I think we've seen so far, and we've seen quite clearly, that not only does God dwell very near, but he feels very acutely the effects of sin. One wonders if God does not feel such emotions more purely and more vividly. We should also note that in all of God's perfections, God does not sin, nor does he suffer the effects of sin. For example, in verse 6, God can grieve in his heart, but he never harbors a sinful revenge. That means, secondly, that God is completely consistent in his character. He's never arbitrary in his response. God never suffered a mood swing. His emotional burdens, they will never cloud his judgment. In Genesis 6, God looked upon the face of the globe and he saw the wickedness of man. And he responded in a fully informed, just, balanced, measured response. A correct judgment. Meaning thirdly, obviously, God experiences emotions. God is no robot. The best illustration of this is the person of Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in him. And Jesus has experienced a full range of emotions. And to our point this morning, he's grieved over sin. And if you and I need one more reason not to sin, to avoid sin, to fight sin, this is it. Our Heavenly Father, who we love, is grieved by our sin. And we don't want to grieve our Father. We want to please Him. We want to bring delight to Him. We want to give Him the worship and adoration due to Him. Refusing sin. Well, over the next few chapters here, we're going to see this response then of God. The outworking of the decision that He has made and expressed. It's our second point this morning. God has a righteous wrath for sin. We saw already that God grieves sin. I want you to see, secondly, that God possesses a righteous wrath for sin. God fulfills his promise, and he is going to deliver only a few from his wrath. Well, it is here that we meet Noah. He appears as a simple contrast of the wicked entering our story. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 goes on to give us a biography. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Well, Noah was a righteous man. He, he lived uprightly. Noah's life uh, aligned with the standard of God for human living. History would go on to record him as such. 
Ezekiel, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, will reflect back and include Noah in a list of righteous men. Ezekiel records Noah, Daniel, and Job. These are three leading examples from our Jewish history. These are men to look to, lives to emulate. Noah lived blameless in his time. Not sinless, but blameless. Compare his life to the lives around him. And Noah walked with God. That echoes Enoch from chapter 5. It ties Noah into this righteous line of Seth. Now, these are all scriptural descriptions of Noah. There's a book outside the Bible entitled First Enoch. It adds to this account, keeping in mind this is not inspired scripture. First Enoch is not a book in your Bibles. It's actually a somewhat humorous account. After some days, my son Methuselah took a wife for his son Lamech, And she became pregnant by him and bore a son. And when he opened his eyes, he lighted up the whole house like the sun. And the whole house was very bright. And thereupon he arose in the hands of the midwife, opened his mouth, and conversed with the Lord. And his father Lamech was afraid of him and fled. Well, back to the Bible. The Bible's reliable, it's accurate on Noah the man. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, is going to label Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Now, you and I are going to meet Noah the carpenter. No doubt, God gifted him with some exceptional skills to make a mammoth of an ark. Later in our account this morning, we'll meet Noah the farmer. He plants a vineyard. But Noah also preached. He preached, no doubt, to his contemporaries, to those who would be destroyed by the flood. And I want you to see the outcome of his preaching. Remember, faithfulness is not in numbers. It's not in the budget. It's not even in conversions. Because at the end of all of this preaching, it was Noah and seven others. His wife, his three sons, and their three wives. From a human perspective, this can be kind of disappointing, even a little depressing. But God calls Noah righteous, and God calls Noah faithful, because in the final assessment, Noah was successful not because he had dozens of conversions at his preaching, but because success is measured by faithfulness. To obey God's word and to proclaim God's word, and this is good news for you, mom and dad. Keep feeding your children the word of God. That's success. That's faithfulness. This is good news for you, employee. Work uprightly in the workplace. Be a light. Be salt. Let the people around you know that you're a believer. Be faithful. That's success. This is good news for you, senior saints. You've been acquiring decades of wisdom. Use that for the glory of God. Be obedient to God's word. That is success. Faithfulness is measured. Success is measured by faithfulness. God tapped this Noah this pastor of a church of seven 
And it would be Noah who would withstand a worldwide flood. In verse 13, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Now you know the story. God is going to save Noah and his family on an ark. The rest of chapter 6 will give us details. Now the ark would have been about 500 feet long, 85 feet wide, 50 feet tall. The, the height would have been divided into three separate decks. By one account, the amount of lumber used in constructing the ark, if we stacked it end to end, would stretch from the top of our state down to the border with Oregon, and then from Oregon down to the border with California in a continuous line. The ark probably resembled a box. It was meant to float. You will notice in the account there's no rudder. There's no propeller. You know who the captain is. Recently, my boys and I have been discussing the Titanic quite a bit lately. So I have a picture for comparison. Could you put that up on the screen? Uh, This picture comes from a ministry called Answers in Genesis. You can look them up online. I um, recommend them to you. They do a great job bringing in um, Christians who are also doctors and scientists to be able to write articles from a biblical perspective. But you can see in the picture on the far left is the Santa Maria. The Wyoming, that's another wooden ship, that was supposed to be the largest wooden ship ever built. It was completed in 1909 and it was created for cargo. You can notice as well the Queen Mary II. That's a modern-day cruise ship. Well, you can see Noah's Ark is about two-thirds the length of Titanic. It puts it in proportion to some of the ships throughout history. And I would also commend to you, while we're on the topic, um, something called the Ark Encounter. This is a a replica, life-size, full-scale Noah's Ark in Kentucky. And you can go and visit it. I had an opportunity to do that with my family a few weeks or a few years ago. You can go in, you can tour the ark, you can be uh, awestruck at how big it is as you stand outside. Um, There's a great museum inside. I learned apparently that concessions are very expensive on the ark. Um, Didn't see that in the biblical account, but I guess they figured that out. But moving along, you see that in this account, God is bringing along two of of every kind of animal, the the land animals and the the animals of the air. And that's an important word, the word kind. That means that um, God could bring along uh, one female and one male bear without bringing along every conceivable kind of bear or type of bear or species, I should say. So you don't need polar bears and black bears and grizzly bears. God just needed one male and one female. And he would work out how he caused the species to multiply and the kind to grow after the flood. Verse 22, thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. I wonder what was going through Noah's mind. We don't get a lot of reflection from Noah's perspective. In fact, it's not until later when he curses Canaan that we actually hear from Noah. I mean, we're never told what it was like for him living among the corrupt. We're never told how Noah felt about preaching, or what his view was on trying to build this ark. So there he was, in the ark, with his wife, and with his three sons, and with their wives, 
And in the background, it would have been a chorus of animals below decks. And then the sky grew dark. One drop. And then another drop. And then they started to come faster and faster until all you could hear was the steady beat of drops on the roof of that ark. The windows of the heavens were opened. And the fountains of the great deep burst open. We understand the first one. We know rain. But we've never seen the fountains of the great deep burst open. I believe the earth was different back when it was originally created. And great waters below the surface opened up. And then the ark moved. shifted. I wonder if he was nervous. I'm a do-it-yourself, or I would be. And what's next? Well, sit tight. To borrow from a Bible dictionary, chapter 7 and chapter 8, they yield quite a journey. In chapter 7, verse 12, the rain fell for 40 days. Waters rose for another 110 days, verse 24. That's 150 In chapter 8, verse 5, waters then fell for 74 days. We're up to 224. In verse 6, 40 days later, the the raven was sent out, 264 days. In verses 10 and verses 12, Noah sent out a dove seven days later, then another seven, then another seven, 285 days. If you compare chapter 8, verse 13, back with chapter 7, verse 11, Noah removed the ark covering 29 days later. Now it's 314 days aboard the ark. And in verse 14, 57 days later, the earth dried. That's 371 days on the ark. So, kids, the next time it feels like forever, (laughs) when you're driving to far-off places like Burlington... Remember the ark. 371 days. Verse 23 gives a summary. Thus the Lord blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The righteous wrath of God judged sin. And we might ask, why such wrath? Why so harsh? We need to know that whenever sin occurs, God's response is always one of two. It's either wrath or it's mercy. And it's worth noting in this account as well that God did extend mercy to all of creation. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Noah preached righteousness. He appealed to his fellow man to come to God and to be saved from the flood. But the emphasis of Genesis is upon his righteous wrath, God's righteous wrath. God hates sin. He doesn't dislike it. He doesn't feel bad about it. He abhors sin. Wrath is God's response to sin, and his wrath is always in proportion to sin. For God to uncreate by killing off everything he made is not only a statement about his wrath, but also about his holiness. That is how holy God is. He is perfectly just 
to react with this level of wrath. If he did not, he would not be God. For what God winks at murder or ignores rape? The biggest question here is not why so wrathful, but why not more often? And that brings us to the next question. Will God judge like this again? The answer is yes and no. In chapter 9, verse 11, God promises there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. That means then that a worldwide flood to destroy the planet will never occur. But in the same conversation that Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, when he discusses the flood, he also discusses fire. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heaven and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So yes, the righteous wrath of God will completely destroy the world again. And I believe this takes place at the conclusion of a series of end times events, very near the end, right before the creation of a new heaven and new earth. It would probably fall somewhere along that timeline after a seven-year great tribulation, after a millennial reign of Christ, when God recreates everything. We know this because there is indeed sin to punish. The wicked in this world call this month Pride Month. In June 1969, police raided a gay bar in New York, and the people fought back and began something called the Stonewall Riots. It took place in the month of June, so the month of June has become an anchor. It's a celebration of LGBTQ culture. It celebrates the homosexual lifestyle. Homosexuality is a sin. It's among the worst sins that one could create against God. In Romans chapter 1, God speaks of the unrighteousness of this fallen world. And when he goes to illustrate it, he points to the sin of homosexuality. Not lying, not stealing, not murder. In other words, to make a case for God's wrath against the ungodly he points to homosexuality. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That is to say that human beings willfully, consciously reject God. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And God gave them over, says the text, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored. And God gave them over to degrading passions, women exchanging the natural function, men as well. It gets worse. Pride Month has selected the rainbow as their symbol. Now, we're soon going to see that the rainbow has been given by God as a glorious covenant 
to remind us of his loving promise that he has made with all of creation. But the wicked have taken that and perverted it in a gross way. It gets worse. Their folly seems to be as great as the patience of God. They've selected as the name for their vulgar celebration the word pride. Pride Month. Even if you miss Genesis 9, the entirety of the rest of Scripture renders a clear verdict on the attitude of pride. Pride is sin. Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Surely he will not go unpunished. Taken together, they taunt God, and they rub it in his face. They steal his rainbow, they pervert his design for sex, and they do it all in pride. So, will God judge again? Yes, the righteous wrath of God will come upon the sinner. I offer one example. God grieves sin, and he holds a righteous wrath toward the sinner. And I want you to see, lastly, God's grace despite sin. God's grace despite sin. I feel like in all of the lives of these patriarchs, every time I get up here to share with you a new point, inevitably, I'm going to talk about the grace of God. It happened with Adam. It's happening with Noah. It'll happen with Abraham. If I just stuck with this two months from now, you'd say every Sunday we heard about God's grace, which we should. But following the flood, God comes and he makes a covenant with Noah. And it's grace because the world is still fallen. The flood, indeed, it wiped out creation, but creation's coming back in still this fallen state. For example, in, in chapter 9, verse 2, relationships change. It's a result of the fall. Now, man's authority over animals seems to lessen. Animals now fear men. In fact, in verse 3, they become food for the human race. Looking at verse 6, we see that murder still exists. Now a penalty comes with the killing of one made in the image of God. Clearly, things are not all as they should be. In a few moments, we're going to see God's grace toward Noah in particular. But I want to look at God's grace here. In, in chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, I want to read this passage to you. It, it's important because of this theme of covenant. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 9. God's speaking. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I am making between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant 
which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the earth become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's a big word. We see it here. We'll see it again, the word covenant. A covenant is, is a promise. Throughout the Old Testament, God is going to, to reveal his plans through covenant. He's going to make covenants. He's going to make a covenant with Noah, and then next time with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And there's three important marks in this covenant with Noah. Each of these marks tells us something about God. We see, first of all, that the covenant is unconditional and it's universal. The covenant is everlasting. God is freely committing himself to this agreement forever. The covenant is universal. We heard it a couple of times in our text. This is with every living creature. Humans, animals, whoever, everything will come on the scene. It'll be born and it'll die. And this covenant with God, it will never, it'll never cease. This, by the way, does provide the world with stability. Uh, back in chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, they shall not cease. The world around us is, is reliable. It's working around on a clock. Secondly, God will not destroy the earth by flood. He should. Righteous wrath demands it. But the promise teaches us that God is also a God of mercy and patient mercy at that. People do not immediately get what they deserve. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And thirdly, we see that this rainbow, it points to a God who keeps promises. He's a promise-keeping God. Whenever we see a rainbow, we should remember that God keeps his promises. I thought it was very interesting in this account. Twice, God says he's reminded by the rainbow. I think clearly he's speaking a language that, that is relating to us. It's not as though God forgot about things and said, oh, a rainbow. You know, I don't think that God operates that way. But the rainbow's pointing to this covenant that God made with Noah. How cool that even down to today, that still happens. There's still a rainbow in the sky all the way since this time in Genesis 9. But I think the most explicit display of his grace comes next. Noah's going to settle after the flood, but lewdness follows. Chapter 9, verse 20. Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders, 
and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew that his youngest, what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Things start off pretty normal enough. Noah planted a vineyard. Halfway through verse 21, no problems yet. Noah drank of the wine. The Bible presents a pretty balanced view on wine. In Psalm 104, verse 15, wine makes man's heart glad. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19, wine makes life merry. But the line between drinking and drunken can be pretty fine. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that drunkenness marks the pagan. And in Ephesians 5, verse 18, the Bible warns us, don't get drunk with wine which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, in all of this, I imagine Noah. Noah withstood many temptations in his life as he witnessed that culture around him and the depravity and the debauchery. But he's not perfect. And here he succumbs. In verse 29, verse 21, his drunkenness results in nakedness. And his son Ham sees him naked. The text leads us to believe that he does nothing about this. Instead, he goes and tells his brothers. You notice in verse 23, the verse is working hard to let us know that these brothers did not see their father naked. They, quote, walked backwards. Their faces were turned away. They did not see their father's nakedness. And a curse will then follow. The law, when it would come, would prohibit nakedness. This was a a big deal. Ham is essentially dishonoring his father. Not only did he not honor his father, but quite possibly he ridiculed him to his brothers. What's somewhat mysterious about this text is why Noah cursed Ham, excuse me, the son of Ham and not Ham. Notice in verse 25, cursed be Canaan. That's like the fourth-born son to Ham. It makes it a little more mysterious because the Old Testament law would go on to stipulate that each person pays for his own sin, not the sin of someone else. So the best explanation that I've read deals with the broader context of this passage. When you get into chapter 10, we learn how nations are going to arise through these three sons. It's called the the table of nations, how nations on the earth multiplied through the three sons, the survivors of the flood. And we also know then that the sons tended to follow in their father's footsteps. Ham would father Cush, Mizraim, Put, and lastly, Canaan. Cush and Put are probably located in Africa, nations in Africa. Mizraim is the nation of Egypt. And Canaan, well, if you know your Old Testament, the Canaanites became not only a a foe of Israel, but also a great hindrance for them. 
The nations are going to try to get together to build a tower, to make a name for themselves. Here we are post-flood with a lot of the effects of the fall still occurring. And God's going to scatter them. Not destroy them, but scatter them. In His grace, God recreates through Noah's sons. Hopeless, fallen nations scattered. The text prepares you and I to meet a man that God would choose to redeem one nation as his own. A man called Abram, a man we'll meet next week. Today, we learned of God's grief over sin. God's righteous wrath against it. Yet his patient mercy despite it. I've heard it said that you and I are saved by God from God. It is right for God to send sinners to hell. That is a just righteous punishment for sins committed against a holy God. But God not only does that, he gives us Jesus Christ. He gives us a mercy. And all who come to Jesus, believing that he paid the price for their sins, they will be delivered through the judgment, from the judgment. You see, there is a storm coming, but not for you, believer. You're going to pass through that storm because all who believe upon Jesus will never feel the wrath of God. They are loved and they are secured and they are delivered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful stories from your word. Thank you for teaching us about who you are through the lives of these people. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not see you as some far off and distant God, but as one who is right here with us, who who loves us, who gives us grace, who gives us mercy. Thank you, Father, for delivering us from your wrath. Thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.